Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the shenanigans. It was the early 80s, and sex was still a good way to meet new people. The disappointment. Now that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. And the self-confidence. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears, and today we continue our award-winning series (laughs) (laughs) on Greatest Albums of 1983. I can get you sleep, think about the implications, diving into... With me as always, he better laugh at that joke, Brad in L.A., Steve, of course I laugh at your jokes, that's why I'm a valued member of the Stuck in the 80s team. Yes. I would say uh, loyalty through brutality. That's my motto. With us this week is a new guest host, Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, a longtime friend of Stuck in the 80s and host of his own radio program, Dimland Radio. How you doing, Dr. Dim? I'm doing fine, and I want everybody to remember I'm not really a doctor. I just play doctor online. Excellent. I'm sure there's Excellent. no uh, legal consequences to that whatsoever. So I can't ask you about this rash? Well, you'd have to hold it up to the camera, but don't take my advice on it. Oh, good. Like any Stuck in the 80s fan, he has a webcam. I'm sure that <laughs> no harm will come from that. <laughs> so, 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 Dim, uh, so people um, who, who aren't as familiar with Dimland Radio and who haven't been following you on the blogs through the years, tell us um, what year did you graduate high school? 1983, the Ooh. year of the albums that we're reviewing. Ooh. Nice. So that, that puts you, both of you. Yeah, two years older than us. So what, uh, what, what city did you grow up in? What city did you graduate high school from? St. Paul, Minnesota. Born and bred, so I haven't really. Uh, I ventured into Minneapolis for about six months, and that was due to my wife, and then quickly got back to St. Paul. Jeez, are they really that different? St. Paul's like the small town that has the convenient big city right next to it, so you can do the big city life on the weekend, and then you know go back to St. Paul where they where they roll up the streets and sidewalks and that, and and feel a little safer. Not that Minneapolis is that unsafe. How how far apart are they? Oh, it's a twenty-minute drive. I no, mean, it's just—I mean, it's one side of the river to the other. It just depends yeah. on. Then call it the Twin Cities for nothing. Exactly. And for those people who are wondering, well, wait a minute—you have Doctor Dim on the show. You should be talking about Minneapolis music. Well, that's in the works. Yes, we, it is. We've been talking uh, offline and, and putting together an outline for an epic stuck in the '80s show on uh, the uh, music and movies of the Twin Cities. That's going to take a little bit more work. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to continue our. Ongoing series of the greatest albums of 1983. Um, we will obviously not be covering the, the biggies. You know, U2's War, Police Synchronicity, uh, Seven the Ragged Tiger. We've already covered those as you know individual shows. So what we're doing is we're coming back each week and we're hitting just three albums. We'll each defend one. Uh, smaller albums that are close to our hearts, um, different genres, and we'll have a little fun and just kind of remember some great music from an unbelievable year. Jim, what, what, what do you think it was about 1983 that made it such a, a productive year and such a great year for music? Well, for me, it was uh, the blossoming of or the actually coming of age of the post-punk kind of movement. So you got all kinds of bands like Gang of Four and, and those guys that were starting out at the end of the 70s started to really come into it in the, in the 80s. 
and uh, you know, like my, my favorite band, uh, XTC, and stuff like that. So I think there was just this fertile ground, and it didn't hurt that uh, Ronald Reagan was president, so it gave everybody an enemy to write songs about. Yeah, and and everybody was afraid of uh, you know the world coming to an end, nuclear war, and all that kind of thing. So it just there was fertile ground for uh, just being contrary. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we were looking at the 1980s charts earlier this week, and there's so much soft country and kind of soft adult hits on there. Those had kind of gone away at this point and left a little space, and it seemed like no one was really sure what was going to fill that slot on the chart. So a lot of different stuff was coming out. Yeah, I think I think this is maybe the first year where you start to see um, the decade take on its own sound, its signature sound. And and shedding the the remaining vestiges of the of the seventies, and you know I would say to my mind the the peak two years of the eighties music wise are eighty three and eighty four, but I could be wrong. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> Steve, you know I always get on board with you on that, and then I always kind of think in the back of my head, is that because we're the same age? Because we graduated from high school in eighty five. So, it probably is. So, Dim, I'd be curious for your take on that. Do you? You know, what do you think about that? Well, I'm kind of a weird case because uh, that's why we like you. <laughs> it's a as my through my high school years, uh, I was into all the the more bland pop radio stuff. I was sure. into all that about the about the most interesting stuff that I was listening to was Rush and The Who. But then I went to art school starting in 83, uh, met, a, met a bunch of kids that were into something different. And I heard, my, out. Yeah. I heard the Sex Pistols for the first time and uh, didn't like it for the first few 50 times. But finally I figured it out and started enjoying it and discovered all this kind of alternative music, which is what you know, which I just delved into. So mm-hmm. the, the mainstream stuff up until 83, I was a little more on board. But after that, oh, boy, I, 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 I just was yelling at everything on the radio. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because it's the same sort of experience I had. In 1983, I got my first, like, real serious part-time job. And it was working for a supermarket chain here in Florida called Publix, which I, I don't think is anywhere outside of Florida, maybe one other state. But um, I got this job, and it was outside of my high school area. So it was a whole new group of kids who went to a different high school. And um, they were all into, uh, you know, Billy Idol and, and the more progressive stuff and stuff like that. So a lot of this music, a lot of the progressive stuff of 83 and 84, I heard for the first time, like, in the back of their car while we're drinking, like, stolen chocolate milk and day-old bag of donuts, Ooh, you know. Stolen chocolate milk, you rebel you. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, hey, someone got fired for stealing chocolate milk there, if I recall. So it seemed it seemed pretty daring at the time. But we would, this whole group of friends who, you know, totally different from what I was used to, you know, would introduce me to all this, like, you know, missing persons and sex pistols and stuff like that. And so it was a great time to, to get a great new, like, influx of sound in my life. So let's begin. Um, I'll start off by defending 1983's Men at Work album, Cargo. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Released June 28, 1983, Cargo is the second album by Australia's Men at Work. Uh, quick trivia question for you guys. Uh, true or false, uh, Cargo is the last Men at Work album. 
I'm going to guess false. Uh, I'm going to guess true just so we have somebody can yeah. be right and someone can yeah. be wrong. Uh, the answer is false. Can anyone name? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> can anyone name the other album that they put out, the third album? Oh, hell no. No, uh, of course not. No. Two Hearts was the name of their last album in 1985. The majority of the band had already quit by then, and only uh, Greg Hamm and Colin Hay were left to tour, and they did so with a group of uh, guest musicians. I always think of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this too. There was an interview or a, a like a little documentary or something. They're interviewing Colin Hay, and he's walking through his house. He's like, oh, yeah, here's where I live. He goes by his mantle. He picks up the Best New Artist Grammy and shows it to the camera. He's like, Best New Artist Grammy. Kiss of death, and just sets it back down on the mantle and keeps walking. It is, it is. It's, it, you know, he's done well by it, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, he actually he'll be here in Orlando next next month or September, I forget, and um, at a venue just around the corner. And I'm, I've, I've missed him the last couple times I had a chance to see him, and I think it, you know, all works out. I hope to see him this time. Uh, Cargo went on to become number one album for uh, Men at Work in Australia. In the U.S., it reached only number three on the charts, but it did uh, later achieve triple platinum uh, sales, so that's pretty cool. I would think there's a lot of stuff in 83 that couldn't get to number one because it was blocked to the top by Thriller. Mm. Yeah. Thriller, yeah. yeah. How, could you, how could you topple that one? How do, you, how do you get around that monster? Or whatever weird Al put out that year, I don't know. Well, sure. <laughs> so, um, now, a lot of people, obviously, you, know, you have this and you have Business as Usual, their first album. Rolling Stone, uh, in their review of Cargo, said, quote, Song for song, it is a stronger overall effort than business as usual. Um, for a while, uh, Cargo continues to dish out ample portions of the meat and potatoes rock and roll that first grabbed U.S. ears last year. It also extends, both lyrically and instrumentally, the darker side of Men at Work's music, unquote. Oh, those guys. They're they so use dumb. their words prettier than a $2 whore. The... Um, but, I had but, a girl uh, do that to me once. Didn't make her my wife. <laughs> Great. Now my son can't listen to this show. He's just like, Dad, what's a whore? <sighs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why I like Cargo is because, you know, I mean, Men at Work at that time was kind of considered, you know, their videos are a little quirky and funny and a little too, uh, you know, word for word, you know, just humor-wise. But... But to me, Cargo has that the dark tone to it. I, I used to remember listening to uh, Overkill, which is just, in my mind, maybe one of the top three most beautiful songs of the 80s. Mm. And I would listen to it. Beautiful, beautiful. And just a, I'm not saying perfect. No. I'm just saying it's just a beautiful song. Well, the, the quote I remember about that, again, I think, was it Colin Hay that said that Overkill is the thinking man's favorite Men at Work song? Yeah. And you just, I remember used to, I used to drive around in my car in Countryside, you know, 1945. And, you know, I remember like Sunset and that song we'll be playing. It's just, it's, it really helps strike the mood. But, um, and I really also love the way that it's been honored over the years. Colin Hay, you know, obviously did all the acoustic versions of it that you hear in the, in the um, TV show Scrubs. And uh, what's, which also kind of ironic because another band called uh, Laszlo Bain from California who does the theme song to Scrub, which is uh, Superman, right? They do an amazing version. Yeah, their the... cover is fantastic. Let's listen to a few seconds from that.
Obviously, Cargo had a few big hits, you know, Overkill, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Jive, uh, It's a Mistake, which has a great video. Um, but I think some of the lesser songs um, deserve attention, too. One of my favorite songs in this album is uh, actually not written by Colin Hay. It was written by Ron Stryker, and it's called Settle Down, My Boy. Uh, if you read the Los Angeles Times uh, crime blogs... I, and I do, I do. Yes, well, you should, since you live there. Daily subscriber. In 2009, you might have saw that uh, Strykert uh, was arrested by the police on, uh, on charges of threatening to kill Colin Hay. That's crazy. What? WTF, my friends. That's, that's <laughs> just... I mean... It was the eye, the vulture eye. I guess. <laughs> And what did he play? Is he, he was the guitar player? He was the guitarist, and, but he does sing Settle Down, My Boy. He, he did sing occasionally some of their songs. Okay. He was sort of like their you know, second-string vocalist. And I remember when I talked to Colin Hay when we did that really awkward interview uh, with him. Where he was riding a bus? <laughs> Something like that. He was driving around, and he just came out of a meeting, and we rescheduled the meeting. Like the, the podcast had been rescheduled like 20 times on the fly. And so by the time we finally got him, he was pretty weary, and we were pretty weary. And the result is one of our... One of our all-time favorite '80s artists creates one of our top five most disappointing shows. What was interesting because I think we asked him about the chances of a reunion, and he was just like, <laughs> "No." It, come to think of it, it might have been just about this time. I'd have to go back and look and see what year we did that interview, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was right around 2009. <laughs> so we, we may we may have literally interviewed him. And wasn't he in LA at the time? Yeah. Oh boy. So literally we may have asked him that stupid question like um, yeah it was in March 2009 at the perfect timing. Oh my god, so exactly Steve, give yourself right. some credit. The guys the guys <laughs> pulling lead out, hot lead out of his back and we're asking him if he's going to get reunited. <laughs> you you think the two years will patch this up and yeah, play feel? live again? <laughs> I don't know if the audience is there. Yeah. No. Yeah, what do the pre-sales look like? Now the only thing I'd say now people might have heard me grumble when you mentioned Overkill. Yeah, I want I want to know about now, that grumble. Now the only reason it's a great song. Don't get me wrong. I and I really love the acoustic versions that have come out since then. I think that, that that's the way the song should have been. The problem is the song lived up to its name. When in 1983 you listened to pop radio, you heard Overkill every other song. It's and even uh, those of us that liked it were just starting to say, okay, okay, play a different song by these guys or just play a different song because it just got so much airplay that it was crazy. Yeah, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. I certainly go through phases where I'm like, I never need to hear that song again. What is wrong with you people? Don't well, you realize yeah. the band has other songs? Corporate and radio has killed a lot of great well, bands. You know, and as, as much as I like satellite radio, they're just as guilty. Well, that's why when the acoustic version came out, when Scrubs, you know, had that come off, and I heard that, I just went, "Wow, that wow, that is a great song." And then I go and listen to the original again. And I thought, "What an interesting way to make the same song feel different." And you know, they're both great versions of them. But for me, I I, I prefer the the acoustic version. 
I, I agree. I, I mean, I don't think I really appreciated or listened that closely to the lyrics in the the initial original re- release, but the it just kind of pops out at you in the the acoustic cover. It's kind of a you know it's a it's a down song, but mm-hmm. it just is it's so well captured in that acoustic version. It's well. Speaking of downers, it's time for Brad to uh, pick his album. <laughs> he wants to defend from the nineteen eighty three. You know, Steve, do you have to be that way? Um, I am not going to defend any albums today, Steve. I'm going to illuminate an album because this album does not need me to defend it. I'm going to illuminate you all on the greatness that is the Rhythmics' third studio album, Touch. is the Arrhythmics' third studio album. Uh, it was released in November of 1983, and it was their second album released in 1983. Um, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This was released at the end of January, and the success of that title track got the band back into the studio to crank out another album quickly. Um, it's not really a sophomore effort, but I kind of thought about it that way. Um, you know, a lot of times a band will have a big successful commercial hit and then they have you know they've spent years and years crafting these songs and then you know the pressure's on and they have to turn another one out quickly and often that you know that sophomore effort is weaker Uh, but that didn't really seem to show up on this album even though it's it is said i couldn't find an actual citation but it is said that this was recorded and mixed in three weeks Uh, which is yeah that's just crazy Uh, but but it makes you think though maybe a lot of these songs were albums that were written songs that were written for the first album that maybe just didn't make the cut and so yeah that could be that could be because it came so quickly on the heels of uh, sweet dreams are made of this i always thought that the song here comes the rain again was from sweet dreams album me too so when i met my wife and she had that album she had it on cd i'd never had it and i I'd go to oh this would be great and then wait a minute where's, like, where's here's, my song where's the song that uh, but love is strange is a great song too but oh, that's a different album yeah that- I could have done that album too. That is, that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite Eurythmics songs. Mm-hmm. But uh, here's a, here's a fun fact for you. Touch was the first album to be released uh, in the U.S. on vinyl and CD simultaneously. Wow, cool. Yeah. So check that out. 1983. That seems kind of early for that. Uh, I think CD was uh, CD came out in '82, I believe. Might have been a little early. I'm not questioning you. I mean, I, I know that you would never sully the good name of this podcast by throwing out some sort of trivia that you hadn't, like, that fully I hadn't read on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> you cut me, Spears. And if you it's on the internet, it has to be true. It's harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. So um, in 2005, this is kind of funny. In 2005, it was rated number 500 on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. But in 2012, when the list was revised, it got moved up to 492. Oh, <laughs> like what? That. <laughs> Do we get a recount there? Did, I, don't, I don't know what happened there. Did they reshuffle the whole list, or did they just decide, oh, you know, we like this better than we thought we did? I have a feeling some people were paid off. Yeah, it's that freaking electoral college. Five bucks to put us up one more spot. Come on, the Rolling Stones electoral college. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, <laughs> some way or another, young Wiener is still screwing us. 
Yes, think... every chance he gets. Yeah. Um, so this album hit number one in the UK. Uh, it hit number seven in the US. And uh, for our listeners down under, it hit number four on the Australia Albums chart. How is it that um, people in Britain and Australia have better musical tastes than we do? Um, uh, smaller countries, smaller markets. Smarter people? I don't know. Good question. Better bands? Better bands. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, better payola because, systems? Is it because we're so large that you just can't, you know... You know, like, uh, your things aren't just aren't selling in Nebraska, you know? Yeah, I, sold that, that probably has something to do with it. Okay. I just, I just want to, you know, it's always one of those questions that kind of bothers me. Yeah. So I, I got to tell you guys, I love Annie Lennox's voice. I would listen to her sing the phone book. Uh, just anything she puts out, I, she has a voice that just gets, reaches and grabs me. Uh, but the song I want to talk about is their first single off of this, which is Who's That Girl? UK it was released in June of 83 well in advance of the album um, it didn't come out until uh, after Here Comes the Rain Again in the US but uh, since we're talking about 83 we'll go with the UK release date uh, hit number 3 there and it has a great video I don't know if you guys remember this video I don't think so well so the video features Annie Lennox again she's in playing that kind of gender bending role where she's portraying both a female club singer and a male patron in the club um, and at the end of the video her char- her two characters share a kiss which is kind of bizarre kinky uh, yeah <laughs> and then and the Dave Stewart parades through the video with a series of celebrity lookalikes and female musicians um, Kiki D is among them. Kate Garner of Hazy Fantasy. I'm sure you all remember them. Of course. And uh, believe it or not, all the members of Bananarama, including Stewart's future wife, uh, Siobhan Fahey. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. So there's uh, shades of Rick Ocasek, uh, Paula Porksgova there, maybe. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to judge because I met my wife at work, too. <laughs> I think I met my first wife at work. <laughs> okay, Dr. Dim, it's your turn to uh, oh. defend. Defend to your dying breath your defend, choice. Defend, defend an album that practically none of your listeners have heard of. Hmm. I think I'll have to take the same road that Brad did and illuminate. Uh, my band, uh, the album is the the, and it's the name of it is Soul Mining. This album was released in 1983, I believe it was October, and it did well in the UK. It got to 27 on their charts, but uh, US charting, no way. Um, an interesting thing about the album, when it came out in the UK, 
Uh, it had only seven tracks on the album, but when it came time to release it in the States, I guess Epic was the uh, the label, they insisted that a uh, an eighth song be put on there because eight songs makes an album. At least that's Seven's a little light, I will say. Well, this, the last song on the album is nine minutes long, so... It, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just about to make a joke about they're not a prog man, but then shades of yeah, shades of Genesis. Well, but it's really good. It's a song called Giant. But then on the U.S. release on vinyl, uh, they they tacked on a song called uh, Perfect, which is a nice song, but it it kind of does feel like it was tacked on. It doesn't live up to its name. I you beat me to that one. Uh, oh yeah. Well, well, I should say that the, the band the the is essentially Matt Johnson, uh, especially at this period. Uh, he he had tried to start a, a band for a little bit and then, then decided that it worked better for him to write the songs and do a lot of the instruments and then bring in whatever musicians he wanted to work with and who were willing and uh, put together these albums. And he did that up until 1988 when he got Johnny Marr from the Smiths and some other fellows to actually form a real band to produce the records and then go touring. Um, so he brought in some uh, well, plenty of musicians, the most notable of which is on the song that I would like to uh, point out as the probably the best track, or at least my favorite on the album, which is called Uncertain Smile. Uh, there is a killer piano solo on that song that's the outro for the song, and that's played by Jules Holland, who was from the band Squeeze. Is it really? I didn't know yep. that. Yes, it is. I and, love that track. And one thing I found out about that, that piano solo, as Jules, Jules Holland was talking about it, he said that it was in, he thought it was intended to be uh, two piano bits that would be in the middle of the song, but when Matt was putting the song together, decided to put the two solos together and use it as the outro for the song, which I think works perfectly. So whatever became of the, the... well, the the last actual album that the band put together came out in in two thousand, and uh, but they have done some soundtracks. There's one in twenty ten for for a film called Tony, and one in twenty twelve for a film called a film called Moonbug. But uh, I I'm not sure what they're doing exactly. Uh, uh, doesn't look like they've produced anything new, uh, as far as just as an album effort for the band. So, you know, they'd be a perfect band to come across and perform at Vegas for the Lost 80s tour. And now, I, f- I, f- I feel like a pimpster for bringing that up. <laughs> and, and that's as you should because you are. But, but I mean, they're the kind of band that for, the most, for, the, for most people, you know, most people know like a handful of their tunes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, you know, the Lost 80s tour is a good chance to get out there and you play, this, you know, play four or five songs and kind of you know, find new ears. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on how you feel about you know getting on board with one of these tours and being you know basically saying I am a nostalgia act. Uh, heritage, and I think heritage that's probably act. hard. Okay, sorry, <laughs> it's probably hard for some people to make that jump. I'm sure it is. In fact, there's some bands out there. Like, I remember talking to uh, when I was talking to Simon LeBond from Duran Duran. I was talking about how you know they they have this need to continue to create new albums, and when they tour, they continue to promote those new songs. And I and I mentioned the whole like nostalgia tour thing, and he was just like. Ugh. Like 
This just, interview is over. over. Don't even ask me stupid song about the reflex. He um he was really like, no, we never ever ever want to become that. You know, it's like we'd rather not make music than yeah. But I don't I don't think that's people have to take that hard of a line to it. Yeah, but that's the that's the impression I get from Matt Johnson. I don't think he would want to be in on that kind of being nostalgic for his old stuff. I think I think he was always trying to do something new. So I, he might not be up for that idea, but then I can't really speak for him. But hey, if we could get Jules Holland, at least we could get that piano solo. Oh, God. God, yeah. How cool would that be? You know what else would be really cool? The Ciggies. Uh, the Mystical Refrain of Reader Mailbag. Hey, as usual, uh, if you take the time to write us a fun email, uh, I will make Bradley read it on the air. Uh, the first email comes in from Kevin Weber, who won the uh, the VJ MTV book, the autographed version that we sent out last. Actually, it's sitting on my desk. I haven't even mailed it out yet. <laughs> Guy Way lives, to get on it, Steve. He lives in Canada, so I have to take this to the post office and have it weighed in the whole nine yards. I swear to God, Kevin, I'm sending it to you soon. But in the meantime, Bradley will read your email. So I'm glad to see that Kevin is still speaking to us. Uh, and we'll address that here in the letter. Okay, so here we go. From Kevin Weber Agnew. No, I'm sorry. From Kevin Weber. Um, after all the stuff you and Brad said on the podcast, after announcing my victory, I considered setting my email filter to block sit80s at gmail.com. Very scary stuff. Uh, you know, we're just... We just want this information, Kevin, for our own, own good. Huh? I, I honestly, I don't remember what we said. I don't think it was creepy at all. No, it was. I think he it was born out of love. Okay. Yeah, I feel better. Good. Uh, okay, back to the letter. In the final analysis, I determined that I've been stalked by worse. What, what are you saying? Um, the book's too good to pass up, so I'll take the risk of being awoken in the wee hours by the sound of sleepy, sleepy at the foot of the bed. Here goes. Address withheld. Um, that's us withholding it. He didn't withhold it from you know what I mean. Uh, by the way, my bedroom's on the second floor in the back. Bring Funyuns. We don't get them in Canada. Kevin. Really? I'm really kind of surprised by that. Yeah. Should I? Should we be sending out Funyuns again? Is it time to go back to the Funyun? Oh, man, don't I don't. I mean, I I love Funyuns. Don't get me wrong. But um, then we have to buy the little boxes that go with them. And, oh yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean that the reason I did that was more as a challenge than anything. Yeah. Day. Yeah. Like, oh, you can't find boxes? Let me send you some boxes. Yeah, no, let's not go back that route. Let's send Brad things that... Just fan Williams. We'll send things that, you know, with rare occasion, I just would rather send things that, that fit into a flat envelope. Use <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's coupon. Get some chicken McNuggets. Fair enough. So, yeah, um, Kevin, I swear to God, I'm going to mail your book here shortly. Um, I just have to go to the Wakiva Springs Post Office and with a box, and I'm sure it'll be headed your way. Uh, who I think we have two emails this week. Yeah, right? we've got another one from Todd in Minnesota. Minnesota, woohoo! MN, that's Minnesota, right? That's right. Okay, good. It could be Maine, couldn't it? Uh, Maine is no, M- no. Look, I'm from Minnesota. Yeah, I know that's what why the abbreviation I, is. That's why I Maine asked is M-E. Him. <laughs> That's why he had me on, so I could confirm that that letter is from Minnesota. It's good to have. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying we we could use some more fans in Maine. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, well, uh-huh. we, we've got Nina. Oh, that's right. Okay, I take it back. You can be from Minnesota. (laughs) Read the the freaking email. Rolling on from Todd in Minnesota. Confirmed. Hi, Steve and Brad. I'm in the long process of converting a vast collection of videotaped items I have here and there over to a digital format to keep on DVDs, my portable hard drive, and my local PC hard drive. And I've come across some real priceless material. 
I went out of my way to tape such classics as the 1989 MTV contest to win the Batmobile. And, of course, there are some classic 80s videos sprinkled here and there, such as ones by The Cars, Prince, Motley Crue, Iron Maiden, and so on and so on. Hmm, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, on a personal level, I also came across an attempt in the mid-1980s by some friends and I to recreate our own version of SCTV, my first attempt at short film and parodies. I can't recall if you've done an episode on it yet, but how about an episode dedicated to SCTV? I remember the episode on Great White North. Did, did you do a whole episode on the Great White North? We did a whole episode on Canada in the 80s. Uh, oh, okay. I was going to say, Bob and Doug McKenzie can only carry you so far. Uh <laughs> But I don't think you've done one on SCTV in general. Yes, a good chunk of it was broadcast in the 70s as well. But for myself and many others, we were not exposed to it until the 80s had begun. Todd in Minnesota. Or Maine. Um, oh, that's yes, a good so idea. Um, well, yeah, Second City TV was uh, the first exposure I had to uh, Talking Heads video of uh, Once in a Lifetime. Oh, there you go. I guess it's, I mean, it's probably available on DVD, right? Uh, or hell, Todd could just send not, us. They're missing a if bet. he's burning all these things on a DVD, the least he could do is send us a couple uh, SCTV things. And uh, perhaps you didn't hear what I read. He was talking about creating his own version of SCTV. I know, but surely he has something he could share with, with the class. One would hope. <laughs> so, I'd like to think of this as our time, Steve. We did have Martin Short, so that could qualify as our SCTV show. Can we get Rick Moranis on the on? Oh, I don't know. You know, he's just now getting back into showbiz. Yeah, so he's desperate enough that he would appear on such a program. <laughs> Remember me, please. I love Brooke Moranis. I would love to have him on the show. I mean, I, I could spend half the time talking about uh, Streets of Fire, where, where he plays uh, the foul-mouthed manager for Ellen Ames. That's true. And I would want to talk about My Blue Heaven, but it's the wrong decade, I think. Nah, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to grandfather that one in because it, it feels so much like an 80s movie. That's so good. I love that movie. I don't know why. Arugula. It's, funny. it's a vegetable. I love arugula. It's peppery. I've only recently been exposed to it. So. Oh, it's so good. It is good. Once you go arugula, you'll never go <laughs> romaine. <laughs> There's a t-shirt. <laughs> Why, if I had next, said week's on, next week on Vegetarians <laughs> in the 80s. Yeah. If I had said that, it'd be a friggin' t-shirt heading my way. Uh, well, I, I'll watch my mail creepy. then. It's creepy. Um, as always, if you want to send us emails, um, the best way to do it is sit 8 Zero S at gmail.com or Steve in the eighties at gmail.com or Brad in the eighties at gmail.com. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. Hey, we'll play a snippet of a movie from the eighties, and if you can get it right, um, I will send you. Well, I send you something on my warm desk. regards, unused postage stamps, or or a regal envelope. Regal Entertainment gift card that is stuck to the back of a Bonefish Grill gift card. That could be yours. Yeah, see, I can sit that in an envelope. No problem. I don't have to go to the post office, Mr. Uh, Canadian, who's afraid of a little love from his American friends. Uh, I would say no, at this point in time, pay attention. This is our clip from last show, but you know what? We didn't do one last show, so we get this to start all will be mercifully new. short. Yeah, yes. ready? Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Come and get it, cowboy. If you know it, email us at steventhe80s at gmail.com, bradinthe80s at gmail.com, or sit80s at gmail.com, and tune in next week to find out if you're a wiener. I haven't said that in a while. Oh. I remember the first time uh, 
<coughs> first Vegas trip when there was only like four of us there. But there was a couple people from Vegas yeah, who joined us for the concert. And um, we were having drinks and I was asking just random questions about the podcast. And and I said, you know, do you think I should still say Wiener every week? Because I'm starting to feel kind of like an idiot. <laughs> and granted, this was like six years ago, you know. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm starting to feel like an idiot. And I thought for sure they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just drop the drop the wiener. That's a, but the 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 couple from Vegas was like, no, no, that's like your signature. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great, great signature that's to what... have there, Steve. Ah, uh, the Miss Refrain of name that '80s tune. You know the drill. We'll uh, play a snippet of a song from the '80s, and it's your turn to guess and email us in. Uh, again, no clip from last week, so here we go. Be prepared. Pay attention. Do you know this song? If you know it, email us at sit80s at gmail.com. Steve at the80s at gmail.com. Brad, I can't do the email just anymore, Brad. My tongue got it numb. Ah, the awkward uh, intro to Stuck and Stuck in the 80s. Hey, um,. We have, we don't we haven't done this as much lately, but I really like this segment. Um, we'll go back and we will play a um, an old story from uh, ye olden days of stuck in the eighties. And um, for this week, uh, Brad picked out one he thought was one of his favorites. And so, Brad, tell us about what we're about to hear. This week's clip is from episode one thirty eight, which was recorded back in uh, late summer two thousand eight. It's an interview with Pete Byrne of Naked Eyes. Uh, which I thought was timely since we're going to be seeing him next month in Vegas. August 10th. And you will be too if you come and join us there now. I'm pimping it too. Um, but this is a little conversation between Steve and Pete about uh, Pete recording. When Pete was recording the vocals for, um, oh gosh, I almost said Uncertain Smile. Uh, when Pete <laughs> was recording the vocals for uh, Always Something There to Remind Me. I think I had read somewhere that your vocals were recorded in one take. At yeah. one in the morning. Oh God! Yeah, in fact, it may have even been later there. Maybe three in the morning. We were we were quite wasted at that point. That's amazing. It, it was. It, I mean, it's never happened before, and uh, and certainly hasn't happened since. It was one of those nights. Where there was a there was a big party at Abbey Road where we were recording the album, and um, Paul McCartney was there, and Linda, and uh, a lot of English, uh, big big English pop stars like um, Billy Fury, and and I can't remember what the party was for. We were working in the studio, but the party was downstairs, and they said, why don't you come down and have a couple of drinks? <clears throat> and, of course, one thing led to another. And so by about the middle of the night, uh, it seemed like a great time to do the vocal. And, um, and so we, you know, we, we stuck it upstairs, and, and we did it. And, uh, and it was quite incredible, actually, because, it, you know, in those days, the way, you know, the way that one recorded a vocal was to, um, to, to get one that was almost there and then do drop-in. So, you, you know, if there was a line you didn't like, you would just drop in and out. And, um, but it is always a laborious process. Uh, you know, promises, promises. I probably spent three days doing vocals for that. Wow. And most, most songs, it, it, it takes a long time. I mean, because there's, there's a technique and also getting a performance uh, at the same time, it, it's, it's difficult stuff. But so you know, to always something there to remind me was one of those just like magical moments. You know, we were we were very relaxed and loose and and you know just basically having fun. Well, it and, it, almost, it almost needed that. I mean, the the way what the song is about and yeah, you needed that sort of tired, 
uh, loose, not yeah. not entirely sober, not entirely. Yeah. yeah, it works. It works perfect for that. I agree, and we and there's so much luck involved in it. I mean, the things like the intro, the, the tubular bells that we use. We were just, you know, sitting around in Abbey Road and, and, and we discovered these bells and they were in the studio and we thought, well, why don't we try them out? And we did and we just thought, man, this is incredible. Because using synths, because we were, you know, we used all synthesizers, we didn't really use anything else. And we started to bring in like a brass player here and there just to give it a bit of color, a bit of texture. But the bells just to set that track up. And, um, you know, it, it was just, uh, you know, it's all luck, basically. And, you know, luck getting that vocal that, that just sat in the track and just had the right attitude and and then the real luck i i believe came when we shot the video because the video just kind of spoke to the whole song i mean it wasn't that i was acting in that film i had actually been up all night and we started at like six in the morning and it was raining and i was absolutely miserable shooting it so it was really a case of uh you know the director and producer of that we um Simon Mill, the director, was just fantastic. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, we, we had a couple of meetings and we discussed various aspects of it, but I had no idea what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, he just told me what to do and I just did it. And, but the, the video, I'm very, you know, I'm very happy to say I'm still pleased with all these years later, whereas a lot of the, lot of the 80s videos I'm not so happy with. Great story. And I remember that was a fun interview to do. Um, it's very rare that you actually get to interview someone after you see their concert. But because Pete um, and Naked Eyes had played Vegas and then they were going to play Clearwater, Florida, like about a month later. So I had it, was, it gave me that rare opportunity to say, you know, hey, I'd seen you live and I'm going to see you again. So did you see them in, uh, in Clearwater when I, they came through? I did. And um, during the interview, I don't remember if this made the interview portion of it or not, but I'd asked him if um, – he was going to play Rocket Man. He had just put out an album um, called, I think it was called like Under the Covers or something like that. Or it was basically a bunch of acoustic versions of Naked Eye songs and other songs from other artists that he really liked. And he picked Elton John's Rocket Man and did this amazing acoustic version of it. It's real moody and everything. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'd love if you played that in Clearwater. He's like, oh, man, I don't have time to play. He's like, you know, they, I, yeah, he, that is in the that is in the show. Yeah, he's, he, a, he's kind of wistful. He's like, you know, you could tell he's glad you liked it. He's like, there's no way I can get away with playing that in my set. They'll right. crucify me. Yeah, they would. And the funny thing is because he goes, but I'll play it for you backstage when I see you. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right. So, you know, fast forward a month ahead and I'm backstage with him and I do the stage introductions for the concert. So I'm out there and I'm, you know, reading, you know, the rules of the venue and then i say you know please welcome my good friends naked eyes and, and all the you know 2000 it was sold out so 2000 people screaming the whole band runs out on stage except for pete who's still you know off to the side so <laughs> so i walk back turning my microphone he's like steve i forgot he goes he goes he goes, don't, I don't want you to think I forgot. And so he starts playing me right there while the rest of the band is already Oh, while start- everybody in the arena is waiting for him to yeah, come out? Yeah, yeah. Well, the band's already started playing like the intro to uh, whichever song they opened up with on that night. I, I can't remember. But he played me like three verses of Rocket Man right there. That's awesome. I was like, holy <laughs> Jesus. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I... Ladies know, and gentlemen, the rock star life of Stephen Q. Spears. I don't have many stories, but the ones I have, I really enjoy. You know, that's all, that's, all <laughs> that's the say. key to a happy life, I think, Steve. If you ever have a suggestion for Stuck and Stuck in the 80s, uh, just send us an email. Don't make me repeat the email addresses. But put um, Stuck and Stuck in the 80s in the subject line so we can find them fast. 
We'll be right back after this commercial break. Perfect landing, Ann. Congratulations. My first solo flight. Oh, you did great. Come on, let's have some coffee. Only half a cup. Oh, I thought you liked fresh brewed coffee. Mm, I love it. It's the caffeine. Look. Brim decaffeinated coffee? Mm -hmm. Mm. If it tastes this rich, fill it to the rim. With brim. Fill your cup to the rim with the richness of brim. just a few minutes left um i wanted to draw people's attention to an online poll that we're doing um brad cooked up this poll that has uh, billboard's top 100 songs of 1980 right brad yeah yep and what we're asking you to do it's a two-part poll vote on your most favorite songs of uh 1980 and your least favorite songs of 1980 and we'll do a show or maybe two shows where we yeah. uh we tell you the results of the poll you decide what songs we talk about. You decide, we talk. Yeah. You listen, dot, 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 profit. Right. But let me remind you, these are only songs from the year 1980. So don't ask you know, where the reflex is because the reflex did not happen in 1980. And, and also to provide some shape to this, we are just starting with the Billboard Hot 100 for the year. So you know, if you want to give us grief, that's fine. But that's you know, we needed some some kind of boundaries on this. Exactly, thing. exactly. So you can you can always email in your I guess your you know fifth party ballots if you want. But we'll, either way, it'll be a fun show. We're looking forward to doing it for every year, and um, just like we look forward to continuing to do some of the 1983 uh, album profiles. And I can't wait to see what's in store for uh, 1984. Uh, Doctor Dim, this has been an amazing experience, man. You are a learned man of music. Oh gee. <laughs> oh, shucks, I'm blushing. And uh we cannot wait to I cannot wait to dive into the Minneapolis or the Twin Cities uh in the eighties episode. I promise we'll get to it sometime this summer. Yeah, I was there. So you, know. you don't know, man. I was there. there. I was there. Well, from nineteen eighty five on, but I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm actually staring at my D V D right now, Purple Rain, I may have to go cue that sucker up next. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I uh, hope you had a good time with the show. Um, Dr. Dim, what's your email address in case people want to find out more information about Dimland Radio? Sure. It's jim at dimland.com or drdim at dimland.com, and it would just be D-R-D-I-M. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we look forward to, uh, to hearing more of your adventures as you come back on the show. In the meantime, myself, Bradley, Jules Holland, and Dr. Dim, we remain here hopelessly stuck in the 80s.
Stuck in the 80s is a Class of 85 production. Please listen responsibly. I know, but tell Jabba I have the money.